This morning is going to be fun. We've got some fun things to wrestle with and hash out together because we're currently in a series called Eternity, where for four weeks we are wrestling with the ideas of heaven, hell, the afterlife, and how now shall we live in between. So, uh, you know, by the way, I, I recognize this is a short series, and when it comes to the nitty-gritty Uh, kind of topics like this, I understand that ideally we have a lot more time to go through it. So this is not a silver bullet kind of series where we're going to nuance all of the questions that we have, but instead uh, it's it's laying a base and a framework that we can build off. In, uh, in series to come and years to come. So just, just a, a heads up. For those of you who, who have the desire to get all your questions answered, that's just not what we are here at Young Adults. That ain't happening, please. But uh, anyway, this morning, people, young adults, children of God, we are diving in to the topic of hell and a loving God. So, uh, wow, that was like a chilling silence. I kind of expected something in return, but okay. Uh, hell and a loving God. So we're going we're gonna to really get our hands on some things this morning. We're going to wrestle with some ideas. And before we do that, let's quiet our hearts and let's uh, come back to the Lord. Let's look to him and let's invite him here this morning and open up our hearts to him with a moment of stillness and quietness before our loving creator. Let's be still for a moment. Lord, the stillness is not something we just do to break things up. It's not something we do because it's fresh or it's different. But Lord, we do this because there is noise, 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 perpetual noise in our lives. And in moments like these, we come and we quiet ourselves and we're still knowing And coming back to the remembrance that there's not a thing you haven't done to make us yours. You have gone to the greatest lengths to ransom to yourself a people who love you and adore you and live for you. And that's who we are this morning. We come to you as sons. We come to you as daughters. Regardless of the week that we've had, regardless of the bottom that's fallen out of life, regardless of even the good things that are happening in some of our lives, we come to you putting all of that on the shelf and looking to you this morning as Father. And in that, we reorient ourselves into sonship, into daughtership, where we're going to be okay. We got a father who's meeting our needs. We got a father who walks with us. We got a father who is intimately acquainted and involved in the everyday of our lives. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us. Would you once again be the God who guides us into all truth? Would you soften any hard parts of our hearts this morning? Would you warm any cooled off parts of our lives, areas that have gone stagnant, 
are cold, would you warm them again? Be the fire in our souls this morning. Let there be a tenderness and a sweetness of your presence. And as we unpack these uh, troublesome and concerning ideas at times, we pray that you would guide us into all truth, you'd speak to us, you'd encourage us, and that you, Father, beyond all else, would be brought glory and honor and praise through this and through the entirety of our lives. And we give all the love and adoration to you in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen, amen. All right, so hell and a loving God. I think when we come to this issue of hell especially, I think obviously we have a lot of questions and a lot of wrestlings, and rightly so, because the Bible really does not spend a ton of time explicating all of the truths about hell. Now, it gives us some context, but by and large, the Bible uh, doesn't emphasize hell uh, as a primary theme or or focus of attention. And so, as we enter into this topic, I think there's a couple things to keep in mind, and then we'll really jump into it. First, I think that I'm speaking to the choir when I say anytime we talk about hell, we're talking about a very, very, very sobering reality that I think we ought to be careful uh, when we take delight in talking about something like this or, uh, you know, scratching the itch of curiosity. I think we ought to be very, very cognizant of the fact from the get-go that this is a very heavy and daunting and sobering reality that's very present in Scripture. Um, and so we, we need to come to it kind of with that heart and with that mind and understanding that this is real. But this isn't sometimes a fun thing to talk about. But I think another thing is that, as I said before, this is not an idea or a concept that's emphasized in Scripture very much. And so I think anytime we come to this idea and this concept of hell, we ought to be careful about giving emphasis where the Bible doesn't give emphasis. Because sadly, this issue of hell has become, I think, a staple of modern evangelism at times where we got people standing up on street corners, turn or burn, you know, like hell's coming for you, fire and brimstone if you don't accept Jesus. And I think that sermons have even been circulated throughout time. Jonathan Edwards, 1741, the uh, prolific sermon, if you guys have heard of it, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Who's heard of that? Uh, Yeah, so it it was kind of a staple of evangelism at that point, that the wrath of God's coming to you if you don't accept Jesus, so repent, 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 repent. And is it in Scripture? Yes. But is it emphasized as a mode of the gospel? No. We don't see that. But instead, what do we see? We see the Creator God who has created for Himself a people in whom He delights and loves And we see this creator that even in the worst state of humanity, he is on the offensive and ransoming for himself and wooing unto himself and drawing to himself a people that is lost and broken and out into the muck and the mire of the sin. He's the one who's drawing them. And that is the gospel summarized in the very well-known John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's this active pursuit of humanity. And so anytime we give hell the emphasis, 
in proclaiming the gospel, I think we're missing the bullseye of the gospel, and that is the love of God, the pursuit of God unto humanity. Now, even still, the hell's still in there, isn't it? Hell is still in the Bible. Hell is still very much uh, spoken of and taught on in Scripture, and thus it's something that we have to give some attention to, and we have to give some study to, and we have to wrap our minds around as much as we can this issue that is obviously still in Scripture. And so, you know, this morning as we talk about this, we can go into this topic and approach it a number of different ways. But uh, this morning, I don't want so much to scratch the itch of our curiosity, and I, I don't so much want to, uh, you know, give attention to theories and propositions and what hell might be, because there's a myriad of interpretive space in this. But um, instead, I want to look at how we justify hell and the nature of a loving God. Because really, when we're talking about hell, that's the crucial issue uh, that we so often feel is at stake, isn't it? It's not so much the presence of hell, and it's not the nature of hell in and of itself, but it's the perennial question, how do we come to grips with the presence of hell and eternal suffering and the proposition that God is an eternally loving God. Are you guys with me? That's the wrestling, isn't it? That's, that is what's at stake when we come to the issue of hell. And so this morning, I want to unpack how we might go about justifying this loving nature of God and this presence of hell. Are you guys ready? Are you in for this? You guys are awfully quiet, but let's jump in. I want to start with three very, very important passages of Scripture that I think can can set the appropriate framework for us moving forward. And the first one's found in Psalm 145, i.e. the Old Testament. And here's what it says. The Lord is what? Gracious and what? Merciful, slow to anger, and I'm going to be annoying here, and abounding in steadfast what? Love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Let's go to the next verse found in the New Testament. Second Peter 3 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that what? How many people? What kind of people? All should reach repentance. Next one, in Timothy. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Are you seeing a trend here? Are you seeing a common theme here that's resounding in both the Old and the New Testament? He desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Psalms, Second Peter, Timothy, and we've left out a number of different passages as well, speaking of the love of God, but really when we take into account the narrative of Scripture and everything that Scripture has to say about the nature of God, we find this crucial reality, this key reality that I think is important to address as we talk about this issue of hell, and that is that both the Old Testament and the New Testament resound with the proclamation that God is is all loving to his creation. 
And I think that this is an important designation because so often we as the church under the new covenant can have this dualistic picture or belief system of the Bible where the Old Testament, we're dealing with a God who yeah, maybe was having a bad day or, or a bad season, and he really had a thorn in his side of those Israelites who we are much better off than, right? Like we have this kind of high elevated notion of ourselves. And God, for whatever reason, was, was like really frustrated with them. But then the New Testament, oh, that's the grace and that's the love of God on full display. When in reality, both the Old and the New Testament are layered and layered and saturated with this proclamation that God is loving, that God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. It's not exclusive to the New Testament, but it is the overarching theme, the narrative of both the Old and the New Testament alike. And so we see this theme time and time and time again in Scripture, regardless of when we see God exercising wrath and God exercising judgment and God coming down and judging sin, both in Israel and the church, which every single time is warranted. But even through that, we see the love and the grace and the mercy of God cut through and him revealing himself as the God who is, in fact, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You guys with me? Okay. And so God is the God who is all loving. The Old and the New Testament very much articulate and explicate this reality, yet... Second Timothy, the last scripture we, or First Timothy, excuse me, the last scripture we looked at, um, also has this reality that we ought to keep in mind when it comes to the issue of hell. So let's go back there. First Timothy says that God desires all people to be saved to come to a knowledge of the truth, but he goes on to say, Paul here to Timothy, for there is one God and one what mediator between God and men. The man, Jesus Christ. There is one mediator. Okay, so we, we see a God who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. And yet, there is one mediator. Everybody say one. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And so we see this tension that Paul is very, very comfortable with, and even comfortable enough to communicate it to a young pastor. And he doesn't really even offer huge justification for this or explain uh, much detail, but he says, God desires all people to be saved, and yet there is one mediator uh, which is Christ Jesus, the mediator between God and man. And I think this is an important distinction because in our modern society, uh, perhaps the greatest attack upon our Orthodox Christian faith and the proposition that there is one mediator between God and man, salvation, is the proposition of universalism. And universalism really takes a number of different shapes. And for those of you who uh, are going, you know, to college right now or have gone through college, it, it's relatively inevitable for us to get through our early 20s and through college and into where we are now without some sort of universalism being pushed on us, isn't it? I think I'm speaking to the choir when I say this. And there's, there's multiple different shapes that universalism takes in our modern society. But I think there's two primary shapes 
shapes that it takes uh, when it comes to this postmodern culture in which we live. And the first shape is this secular universalism. Coexist. What's true for you is true for you. There's, you know, there's a number of different roads to God. How many of you have heard this? All of us, right? One person's heard it. Awesome. <laughs> I'm going to talk to you, David Leal. I see that. There are a number of different ways to God. You can be Buddhist. You can be uh, Muslim. You can be Christian, sure, but we kind of have a chip on our shoulder against you guys, but we're not going to talk about that. And, you know, you can be all of these different things, and they're all one single pathway to God. Okay, Um, so that's secular universalism. But there's also even this uh, theistic universalism, specifically within the Christian framework, that is extra sticky and extra slimy when we get our hands on it because it holds to to the notion and argues that God is so loving and so merciful and so gracious as demonstrated in the sending of his son Jesus. Okay, yes, you guys got it right so far. But he's so loving and so gracious to where he will not let anybody go to hell. And even if he does, it's going to be a very temporary existence in hell. And then eventually every single person, all humanity, all creation will eventually be ransomed to him and will live in perfect paradise and bliss with him, which I don't need to go to great lengths to say that that is absolutely contradictory to what scripture says uh, for a number of different reasons and in a number of different places. And so I don't want to beat a dead horse with that. You guys can go on and look up those references yourself. But um, when it comes to universalism, I think it's important because this is one of the two extremes that we find in our postmodern culture. One extreme is militant atheism on one side. There is no God. Religion is uh, absolutely atrocious to humanity, and it's bringing down the thriving of our human civilization and all of this, that, and the other. But then on the other side, you have this wide open coexistence model that goes beyond just coexistence and living peaceably, but it's actually every religion is the way to God. And it says, you just do, you theological relativism, you believe in the God you want to believe in, and you can be assured that you will one day get to paradise and be with God. And it's these two extremes that I think the church is sandwiched into in this postmodern culture. But specifically when it comes to universalism, I think there's a huge distinction we need to draw as it relates to hell. And that is, we got a slide up here. It's salvation as universal versus salvation as universally available. And this is an absolutely crucial distinction with the Christian faith. Because universalism argues that salvation is in fact universal. That God being God and God being loving uh, loves humanity so much to where he will actually uh, ransom every single person and all will come uh, eventually into paradise and be with him forever. Um, But really in scripture, nowhere do we see that every single person will be saved. In fact, we see the contrary. Uh, we see Romans 10, 9 to, 9 to 10, that says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is what? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Not if you confess with your mouth, there is a God. Somewhere up there, some kind of God. And because I believe in God, I'm going to make it to heaven one day. But instead, when you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
as in the one true God, as in the king of the cosmos and the universe and everything and every person that dwells within it, Jesus is Lord, then we'll be saved. We see this very countercultural proposition and this exclusivity even in scripture that says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes, there's a God. And yes, you can believe in God, but there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And it's through him, and when we uh, put our allegiance in him, and when we declare uh, submission to him, and when we live under his lordship, then salvation comes. And so it's important to distinguish uh, salvation being universal and salvation being universally available. Because Jesus gave himself, and through his, his broken body and his shed blood, he tore the veil between God and man, and he made salvation universally available to where who all call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All who live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, all who give the, the entirety of their lives to serve and to love and to adore him, even at the expense of their own comfort and their own desires, we see then there is salvation. So it's not salvation as universal, but salvation as universally available. And so even though salvation is universally available, that does not mean that every single person will uh, make it to heaven one day. That does not mean that there will be paradise for all as long as we just live and let live and believe in some sort of God up there that we maybe can't name. But instead, it's, it's on the table for every single person. And so every person has the offer, the invitation. They have been wooed to a certain extent into God. And they can choose to accept Jesus as Lord. And we see this, act, this in action really in the parable uh, in Luke chapter 16. 19 to 31. This is going to be a lot of text we're going to roll through, but I think it helpfully illustrates what we're talking about here. Salvation as universally available. So if you got your Bibles, you can turn there. It'll also be on the screen. Um, Here's what it says. This is Jesus given a parable. Again, this is a parable. So anything we draw about hell from this, remember it's in parabolic language. And he's not talking literally here, but he's illustrating something in broad and general and parabolic language. Just a side thought for some of you. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Find somebody next to you who's wearing purple. I don't know. I'm breaking things up right now at this point. And say, yo, you're wearing purple. Sorry, guys. I apologize for that. <laughs> he was wearing purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being, torment, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, 
Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may be able, and none may be able to cross from there to us. Speaking of the finality of the judgment. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him... To my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but but if someone goes to them from the dead, if there's really a supernatural encounter, if you really go to farther lengths to reveal yourself, then they will repent. And then he says the staggering reality, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's weighty, heavy. And you know, when we look at this, there's a number of different ideas that we can gather here. There's a number of different, even points of application and areas of study that we can glean from this, as parabolic the language as it may be. But I think a crucial part of this passage, and and if that's not up there, let's go back to that last excerpt. Um, A crucial part is that God makes it clear through Jesus in this parable that God has sent to the people of God Uh, Moses and the prophets. And remember, who's telling this parable? Jesus, the one in whom would be the greatest demonstration of God's love, the one who is the incarnation of grace, the one who is the physical and tangible substance of God's reconciliation of the world to himself. This Jesus is saying that God has given to his people Moses and the Torah, and then he's given them the prophets, this prophetic witness that there will be a Messiah someday. And then Jesus in the flesh says that I am that Messiah, come All you who are weary and I will give you rest. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so through this parable and through the life of Jesus, we see that God the Father has gone to the greatest lengths to reconcile to himself a people to love them, to, for him to be their, their God and for them to be his people and for him to be in this communion and this intimacy with them, both in this life and in the life of the world to come, we see this God who has made himself available to humanity. We see this God who has so uh, lavishly given this invitation to salvation, and yet that invitation, according to this parable and the narrative of Scripture at large, does not mean that all will receive it. The invitation being on the table, the opportunity to come into salvation, does not in and of itself mean that all will be saved, but instead we see this reality that God is loving and merciful, and he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is the God who has made himself available and who has given his covenant to humanity. And it's on the table. Take it, please. We see this plea in the book of Revelation. I I set before you life and death. Choose life. Choose life, people, because there is a covenant and there is intimacy and there is life for you if you choose Jesus. And yet we find that there even still is the tension that some will not believe and some will choose, you know what, I'm okay. 
and some will leave that invitation on the table and sadly will be subject to hell for all eternity. However we define or characterize hell, uh, you know, through a number of different theories or ideas, more than that, we see this God who has given and given and given of himself to humanity and who has chased down inexhaustibly so humanity and who has sought to bring them near to his heart. And so then when we see God in this light, we see that the presence of hell and the loving nature of God are very, they, they're, they're together. These are not mutually exclusive ideas Uh, But they can dwell together. They can live together. We can be convinced in our theology based on scripture that there can be a heaven and eternal condemnation and damnation, but that does not speak to the loving nature of God. That by no means undercuts that God is a loving God because, again, he has... inexhaustibly, time and time, century after century, millennia after millennia, sought down the people that he has created and wooed them into covenant relationship with him. And now life and death are on the table for us. And we then uh, have choice. And I'm not going to get into the, you know, the argument of Calvinism and Arminianism here. That's not what this is for. But the point is, is that if we see a God, even in the face of hell, and the warnings of hell throughout scripture, who has gone to great lengths to ransom for himself a people, then we can know that we can trust this God. We can know that this God is worthy of our trust, that this God is in fact loving, that this God is in fact gracious, and we can give our lives to him and know that though hell be a very, very real reality, that God's love still remains forevermore that his love endures forever. And so life and death through the love of God are on the table for us today. Does that make sense? And I think it's important because anytime, again, we come to this issue and we start wrestling with this idea of hell, we can maybe be subject to some voices that are coming at us that call into question, if God is so loving, why does he condemn people to hell? Wait a minute, wait a minute. The narrative of scripture instead paints a different story of God going to great lengths to ransom for himself a people and to love and woo them into relationship with him. So we can know and we can trust that God is all loving and yet there is still hell. But we can trust him and we can know him and we can love him and we can take life as that invitation for us and live in unbroken and unbridled relationship with him, both in this life and in the world to come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and loving God. You are a God who has gone and who has emptied himself in order that we may know and love you. You are a God who has time and time and time again pursued us. And you're the God who is still pursuing us. You're not the God who, you know, set this salvation story in motion, and now that it's culminated in Jesus, now you're disassociated from our lives, but instead we see the the contrary, that your Holy Spirit is continually at work upon the earth through the church to bear witness and to be a light to the darkness and to call forth the love and the mercy of God and to proclaim your goodness and your life and your light to all creation. 
So Lord, we say right now that though we wrestle with questions, though we sometimes struggle with this idea, though we're challenged with this idea in our spheres of influence, we come back to the audacious assertion, the bold faith, and say that you are a God who is worthy of our trust. You are a God who is worthy of our love. You are a God who is worthy and deserves and demands our adoration. You are loving, you are true, you are good, and we trust you, and we love you. And as we discuss these ideas and really make these concrete and wrestle with these ideas as it relates to our specific circumstances and life season, we pray that you would continue to teach us. Would you make this real to us, Lord? Have your way in this time. We give you praise, and we love you. In Christ's name, amen. Let me say before dismissing you guys to your tables, um, again, I want to be clear. Does all of this answer all of our questions about hell? I should be hearing a resounding no. Obviously not, nor is that the intent. But anytime we talk about hell, we need to, in the same breath, Uh, recognize the grace and the love of the Father. That is not disqualified with the proposition of hell. And I'm just putting it out there. Um, But enjoy time at your tables. uh, Discuss, unpack these ideas, wrestle with these ideas. we got three questions up on the screen. As always, use these as a guide and uh, do what you will in your time. But enjoy your discussions. God bless you as you discuss. And we'll pick this up and dismiss and pray together here in about 15 to 20 minutes. All right, you guys. Much love, young adults. Enjoy. All right, everybody. Go on, wrap those conversations up. Was this morning helpful in any way for discussions at tables? Does this give you guys some things to chew on? Yes. Okay. Great. Um, Again, want to emphasize that we ought not emphasize this topic in our theology. Is it present? Yes. Uh, Should we believe it? Yes, because it's clearly in Scripture. Yet, we ought not put emphasis where the Bible does not emphasize. And I just want to emphasize that once again. Uh, Let's stand up and let's pray the Lord's Prayer together as we dismiss, and then we'll, uh, we'll get wrapped up here. Will the Lord's Prayer up on the screen? Though, I I think we will anyway. Do we have it? Gabriel, we don't have it. All right, let's say it together then. And and we'll say trespasses, all right? Trespasses. We jump around a lot here, but for cohesion, we'll say trespasses, all right? Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen and amen. 